Welcome to Direction Correct, a Beatbox podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Michael and Emily Campion. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. Cities, but went to Seattle then for the first time. I love it there. That's really cool. Yeah, it's different. I grew up in the South and like the people here are different, but it's absolutely beautiful. And like, I mean, it's struggling to get out of the seventies here, out of the, out of the sixties, pardon me. Like it's barely touching. <laughs> okay. So like in a very stereotypical <clears throat> move, I've been watching a lot of those like documentaries on like all the killers along the West Coast lately. Okay. And they were like, they were, as like, one they were, does. As one, they were in, there is all in the seventies, like Bundy and all like all in the seventies and in like Washington. And I'm, I'm like, man, I, I didn't, I don't know if I really fully appreciated the, what was going on in the seventies on the West Coast. <laughs> I think Scott meant the temperature, but I may, I may be wrong. <laughs> well i mean there, oh, there are people still meant? okay there, there are years. people still stuck in the 70s here like don't get, get me wrong but <laughs> i mean we're definitely starting the episode right there <laughs> see, <no. laughs> see this is where my mind is I've, I've been watching all of these documentaries i'm so sorry <laughs> oh it's not funny it's it's really bad although i you know i was in buffalo for four years for my degree and um that's how i felt Na- niagara falls the american side looked you had these you know the old rv's sign with the hat yeah it sort of had all of that look and it's like it looked like it was trying to get out of the 60s or 70s so <laughs> that's the connection i made scott i'm sorry <laughs> no worries like it's all good it's all good but i mean like, it was a perfect opportunity to introduce you to uh Michael Campion, Distinguished Professor of Management at Purdue, uh, over 150 publications, you've probably heard of him. Topics such as employment testing, interviewing, job analysis, team design, training, turnover. I love that profile, including article. Uh, also, Campion of Fisk, competency modeling, fantastic stuff. And Emily Campion, Assistant Professor of Management and Entrepreneurship at Iowa. Go Hawkeyes. That's go right. Hawkeyes. Go Hawks. That's right. <laughs> A uh, recipient of the Tippy Research Excellent Award 2023. Oh, yeah. uh, a bunch of publications, uh, well-being, leadership, text analysis, employment testing, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, we're welcome busy. you too. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, and like this is a family affair, but y'all y'all publish together quite a bit. We do, yeah, yeah, and and actually we're the we're the I guess the second and the fourth in the family. So his brother. My uncle Jim was the first, right? Dad, he went to IO first. And then my brother was the, so dad was the second. My brother was the third. And now I'm the fourth. Do in your first in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. It is well, so Emma, I actually have a question for you kind of along those lines. Like what, what's it like growing up as like IO royalty? <laughs> like, so I, I didn't like, you know, my dad, my favorite thing about my dad is um, he's 
you would never guess that he has this profile that you just you guys just read <laughs> off my fit I always try to explain to it like I remember I was we were having lunch one time oh, that's what we always did is we always had lunch during the week like we would have lunch every week when I was younger and I remember one time I was standing near campus at a, at a restaurant waiting for him and he walks up with a shirt that's a button short sleeve from the 80s speaking of like early time periods <laughs> to be red and now the stripes were pink and worn he had his you know tucked into uh you know khaki shorts with white socks that go up to his ankle and close to his sandals from oh yeah and to add to it he's got a plastic bag full of like a grocery bag with like an apple and pretzels and all this stuff like all this health food he's just a it's sort of like nerdy as it gets and so it never occurred to me that he like was doing anything relevant (laughs) (laughs) he's just dad to you at this point right yeah i mean like you know i had like he was very into like using goal setting theory when i was younger and you know using the theories to help mike and i sort of progress put you like in a skinner box or anything like that not that i'm aware of but maybe when i was really little i don't know Actually, the worst of it is I like to put my kids in Uh-oh. physical outdoors and I would yeah. take the kids out, you know, doing boat rides and things and uh, routinely getting all of us in trouble, uh, just stupid stuff. You know, we we used to like to, I used to like to explore creeks in the spring and fall when the water's high. And mm-hmm. I mean, one time we got too far away, had to spend the night on the bank of a creek sleeping you know stay our clothes uh and another two or three times i you know hit a stump and went you know beach the boat up on a wall the kid jump out boat gets full of water we empty it i just empty it out kids jump back in down we go just completely insane stuff real real physical outdoor stuff that uh, i could have killed the kids that's that's the downside of it all. It was so much but, fun, know, though. <laughs> it was so, we didn't know. Like, we were kids. Like, I was just, well, I mean, like, at, at that point, you just, like, apply a label to it. It's like, we're going to call this adventure training. And, That's you know, right. we're going to teach you guys some lessons, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the best profession you could possibly have. I mean, I just think I.O. is about the best profession. And uh, being a college professor is the best job ever. Uh, and so... That has to have an influence, but you know, I kind of forgot after all the years how much work it is, and it's just so much work. <laughs> just repress it after a while. Yeah. <laughs> we made him relive it when Mike and I were going through our PhD. Yeah. So, like, we would call and be like, Oh my god, you didn't tell us it was going to be this. And he was like, Oh, yeah, sorry. Like, you know, so he had to relive it for all those years, I think. Well, maybe we'll turn this into just an advertisement for IO. Like, what do y'all enjoy about IO so much? Dad, why don't you go first? Because I, I, well, I will say one thing. Yeah. What I do like to tell folks about, like, I get asked why I go, why I went into it, and I, to be honest, I'm still trying to sort of figure out all these years later um, why I did it. You know, he's never complained about work, and there, I don't have a friend who has a parent who hasn't yeah. come home complaining about work, and and he never did. Like, he sure he's tired, sure he worked a lot, but like, never was there something fundamentally uh, for him, like sort of like this notion that work was a terrible place to be or or whatever like you just embraced it and and what he got to do he loved and he would always communicate that to Mike and I um I don't think it was meant to make us fall in love with the field but I think it was just him sharing you know his life experience in times where we didn't see him and so I don't know that kind of that attitude was a really big deal when I was thinking about what to do next and I was like well he doesn't hate his work and no one else I know is like that 
So maybe this is good. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it was very strategic. So I waited until the kids were extremely unhappy in their current jobs. Then I would say, gosh, I can this. Like and, you already and, you know, out, you come to the I.O. side. Yeah, well, I'm probably the only guy you'll meet that says if I could do my career over again, I would do exactly the same thing because it's turned out to be much better than even I expected. And that, uh, nobody says that. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've appreciated about both of you is how, like, IO psychology really contributes to the research on trying to make the workplace more humane. And it sounds like it's kind of a humane profession in of itself. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you about today was just some of the stuff that's going on about in the selection space in IO psychology and specifically the use of things like natural language processing and emerging technologies in this space. And so um, I think we had, um, and, and Scott, feel free to jump in here. I think we had an article from, from Michael and Emily both about the use of this in the workplace. Would you guys like to talk about, you know, what your perspectives on the use of these new technologies in the workplace may be? Yeah, I think we do have a, we sort of have a, this, a similar perspective, um, which is, you know, I, I was actually putting, we just had an article accepted in JP. We're very excited on this topic. It's one of, it's one we've worked on for several years with, uh, Congrats. Of, thank you, with some folks at the U.S. Air, at the Air Force, and that's been just an exceptional experience. And it's on this idea of, how do we actually use this stuff in, in an operational context? So I've been, um, I've been, I'm freshly sort of thinking about it because I'm presenting it at Academy next week. And, and I, I think, you know, we see this as just automating so many time consuming processes. So if you think about applications, I and mean, we've all submitted applications and tons of applications and, you know, ones that are specialized to certain organizations or occupations, and we produce so much text content as applicants. I mean, it's exhausting. It's a full-time job Absolutely. to get a job, you know? So what, what we think organizations are missing out on, and not intentionally, just by natural limitations of how much we can process as humans, is all this text data that's left on the floor. Like all this stuff that can be assessed uh, systematically and quantified and included in the application. And it has information that's relevant. I mean, think about how much we talk about our knowledge, skills, and abilities in our application. But I've got a question about that, Emily. Do you think, because I mean, what you're originally really saying is, you know, taking all the wasted effort that people have to put into job applications and making it useful effort. But is there any possibility of like changing the job application process just to receive text and then use that data in itself as a better selection tool? Yeah, I mean, I would hope that as more and more companies are able to use these sorts of products or, or algorithms, however you want to start talk about it, because they might not necessarily use an external product they could develop in-house, um, that we should probably rethink how we're actually extracting a lot of this information. So right now, what we're doing with some companies, we're using stuff that's more passive, like stuff they're already asking about. But you can imagine in an interview where you really want to know about certain things, and if they don't use highly structured interviewing, which they all should, right, Dad? Um, but if they don't, we sort of do it more passively. Um, and, and so we can really go after and tailor and be good IOs and, and really, uh, go after what we're trying to ask about, um, uh, and then use text in that way. And in that way, I mean, I, I love that for candidates in some ways, they are actually able to speak directly about what the skill, the skills that they have, but at the same time, we're then asking them to produce even more because they're not just applying to one job. They're applying to all these different jobs and all these different jobs ask slightly different questions. And so 
Um, I think the flip of this is actually training candidates on how to do this process, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. Is, is there a fear that like we're actually uh, assessing a construct that isn't job relevant at that point? Like yeah. not every job is say like communication based. A lot of them are, we're going to head this way as we become more technological, et cetera. But is there, is there an unforeseen issue with using sort of text-based analyses? Yeah, let me answer a couple of separate questions first. The, the way we got into this is we were very early adopters. So in 2012, a confluence of three things happened. One is um, one of my big clients was doing a lot of uh, spending many hundreds of thousands a year processing applications, and they were very labor filled. Uh, second thing that came along is big data. We just got so much damn data going on and, and mm -hmm. that including this particular application. Third thing that happened is a couple of software companies that we know and love, SPSS and SAS, came out with software to analyze text. And so I kind of saw the opportunity and start in, in 2012, uh, was able to uh, collect data and uh, that resulted in a publication. In fact, that, that system is still running today, Emily, and I just revised it. Uh, uh, but uh, that resulted in a publication in JP in 212, uh, excuse me, 216, that uh, was the first top article in an IO journal. And, and it kind of, honest to God, launched our career, launched my career over again. Since then, I swear to God, I'm, I um, am doing, you know, nothing but this. I work for lots of companies uh, reviewing what they do. Uh, we have a whole bunch of studies in press. And, and the things that strike me are, you know, threefold. One is you can do as good a job as a human in scoring structured interviews, in scoring applications, or doing about anything else. So you can train a computer to be as good as a human. Second is it reduces adverse impacts. So the piece we just got in JAP that we're so proud of is that we were able to increase prediction above, you know, wonderful mental ability tests that the military already has and has, you know, been doing really well for 50 years and reduce adverse impact at the same time. How often do you ever get to increase validity and reduce adverse impact? Usually it's this trade-off. You get one or the other, but not both. Most people don't get either. And then the third thing is just the efficiency <laughs> of it all. The efficiency of it all is just fantastic. I mean, each time we run this this program for this current company, it saves them like 200000 And we run it several times a year. It takes us a day, saves $200,000. So those are really three important things. And from a scientist's point of view, uh, the text is like a whole new planet. You know, uh, if you look at machine learning, and you guys probably are, are know a lot about this already, you know, they don't really help much with the same quantitative data beyond what we currently have. What they offer hope is is scoring new stuff. That first came to my mind. In a, I was reviewing a report written by the RAND Corporation. They asked me to review a technical report, and it was pitting uh, basically fancy, complex, the latest machine learning versus additional data. And what they found is additional data is always better than fancier statistics. Now, that's such an impression on me. So I think it's a whole new world. Uh, you'll see we, we, we did a special issue in PSYCH that's got about a dozen articles in it that uh, comes out, is mostly out right now uh, on this topic that uh, really is, you know, brings a lot of this to light. You got to save some room for us. Like if you're having a second career already, Michael, I mean, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> some of us need a career too. I like your question though, about like 
should we have concerns about what it's picking up? Because that's the que- that's the big question about machine yeah. learning. Like everyone has this big concern. I understand those concerns. Actually, I think my dad and I share this perspective that we there will be a time where people will per- prefer that over a human. Right now, we're all the same, right? We want to, if something's wrong, we want to talk to a human. We all press zero until we get to a human, right? Like we all do that. But there will be a time when we will prefer, I think, that we that we our information is 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 you know pushed through an algorithm instead because it gives the same amount of time. To, I mean, it's like when you talk about fairness, it gives the same amount of time to each candidate. It's looking at your information the exact same way every single time. It's not influenced by mood effects. It's not influenced by you know the temperature of the room or you know whether or not you're tired. And so I think there will be a time. But more directly to your question of is it picking things up? You know, what's so great about our field is we know how to find those things. Like we, we are all trained in psychometrics to figure out, like, is it picking things up that it shouldn't be picking up? That like, is, that, that's super true. That's super true. And like, yeah. it kind of leads me to like, you know, Paul Sagan just released an article, right? Yeah. Essentially blowing up uh, the old Schmidt and Hunter article, uh, re-evaluating all the ability coefficients of associated with selection. Like where could NLP actually fit in there? Or could it like take over several of these constructs really? Because it's a method, not really a... That, that is a really good point. And uh, the Sackett's piece is, you know, it's a very good piece. I read it carefully. He's my tightest, one of my tightest friends. But the weakness is the meta-analyses themselves uh, have uh, uh, limitations. So you can only reanalyze garbage data so many ways. Oh. Gotcha. So the personality data that is reported is primarily concurrent designs. It doesn't hold up in predictive designs. Uh, the uh, emotional intelligence and the uh, um, and the integrity stuff is all it's all proprietary. It's all garbage research. And just because you take a bunch of garbage studies <laughs> and have Frank Schmidt meta analyze them doesn't forgive all the sins. They were crap. I I was a reviewer on many 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 of them in the eighties. We dinged every one of them. So they got Frank Schmidt and said, here's a bunch of studies, meta-analyze this. He was a, you know, a trusting guy and he meta-analyzed it and they published it, but that the, but the underlying data is garbage. And, and people, if you have a profit motive and you do all the research on a topic, it, you just can't be believed. So anyway, so I got problems with the meta-analyses. Uh, I'm sure his corrections are right. He's about the smartest guy on the planet when it comes to that sort of thing but so i mean like wh- where does that leave us like we, we had schmidt and hunter you know 98 similar article saget comes out with you know uh, ostensibly a, a different opinion is it somewhere in the middle is it uh, sh- do we need like another study of this well here's where i would come down uh mental ability tests work uh structured interviews work uh situational judgment tests work uh, other things work a little bit to some extent uh, but probably the stuff that's published on biodata, integrity, emotional intelligence should be taken with a grain of salt. So that, that's kind of where I would look at it. I think all, but mainly Sackett did, is he just basically said that the, the, the corrections for the mental ability tests were probably too much. And so right. they should be backed down a bit, you know, maybe, but only the mental ability tests and the interviews were actually collected by a wide range of people, none of which really had a dog in the fight. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the mental ability came out of uh, government data collection and, you know, they don't, they're not trying to publish an article to get to make money. Let me build on this because I, I love that point that you made about like, here's the things that work, here's the things that have a little bit of evidence and here are the things that have no evidence. And I want to tie it back to something you were saying earlier, uh, or one of you were saying about 
additional data, lending being better than, you know, uh, you know, just trying to kind of torture the data until it confesses a little bit more. And, <laughs> and so my, my thought here is, and then I want to tie that back to the NLP point is, you know, our best statistical measures still only account for a certain percentage of the variance. And, and honestly, it's not that much most of the time. Is there the possibility that with additional data and with additional methods, we find actually new constructs or new criteria that is job related? So I know we all focus on the things that aren't job related that may have, you know, discriminatory impact or something like that. But what about new things that are job related that don't have discriminatory impact? Is there a possibility that we're finding more of those type of things now? Yeah, I think our hope is that with the use of additional text data and being able to actually analyze it systematically uh, and quantify it, that we will find new constructs. But I want to be cautious about construct proliferation because that's like a big that's yeah. a big thing we have to deal with. Um, but we might find other ways to operationalize it. So this has been a big deal for us right now is thinking about personality. A lot of people like personality because it doesn't show any subgroup differences. And we know that once you get into an organization, it matters. It matters how agreeable you are. It matters, you know, whether or not you're enthusiastic, you know, and these things matter. They, I know there's been a back and forth about how much it matters in the selection process itself, but one of the key limitations is that we're reporting on ourselves. If an employer says, are you organized? You're going to say, Meh, no, I'm the most organized person ever. Or at least you should see all my, you know, calendars or something, you know, like you're gonna <laughs> obviously going to tell, because it's high stakes. You can't blame candidates for doing that. That's totally. we've, we've all done it, right? It's you know, but but we're hopeful that actually, you know, to your point before Cole about like rethinking how we're collecting data for selection is asking questions so then we can extract someone's personality in a way where they're not they're not maybe fully aware um, that uh, they're they're reporting that sort of thing to us. So by asking across situations how they're behaving, we can actually figure out how conscientious they are, how open to experience they are, um, and then use that, which we're hoping will be more predictive than self-report, which suffers from I mean, it suffers from just range restriction because everyone gives themselves fours and fives on the good things, right? Um, and again, I'm not blaming a single candidate ever. I, you know, I talk to my students about about how to actually respond to some of these things, but but our hope is that it'll fix some of these fundamental problems. And I think we'd find that personality is even more predictive in the selection process um, by measuring it this way instead. Yeah, you have to fake it in an interview process anyways. Like, oh, yeah, you, you, you wear a nice suit. You don't look like that when you go into the actual job. <laughs> I'm, Is there anything? I'm faking it right now. That's maybe a skill. You know that? Yeah. I mean, it's a yes, skill yes. Things well. It's a cognitive ability test. Like, you have to be able to fake it and just to show up that way. That's right. You got to know. So, uh, to your point, though, I think uh, the use of text will allow us to discover constructs that we were unfamiliar with before. Emily could have mentioned that we have a review article under, it's been around a couple of times, hasn't gotten published, but it reviews 250 articles uh, where uh, text analysis has been used quite extensively in other management areas and in entrepreneurship and other fields where they can't actually collect data from the actual, you know, executives. Uh, and so it's been used for years and years and uh, much of it to discover new constructs in the area of OB and, and uh, others. So, uh, so I have great hopes in this, uh, this recent JAP, we found that we could understand people's work history in a manner that we couldn't capture it well anywhere else, even including biodata. 
So, you know, it's an alternative method, you know, I, I think multiple choice has some adverse impact that it doesn't need to have aside from what it measures, because it, you know, so puts people in a box and you get four choices. And if you can express things the way you think about them, that might be just better. Well, we another thing we talked we do in this paper that I am really excited about is actually trying to find ways that um, people are gaining skills uh, outside of formal work. So I think when we typically think of a resume, we think of what your formal work experiences, but we do have some research that suggests what you're doing outside of work you're also gaining skills. Um, so you can imagine, you know, like like some of them because of the military context, you know, they're Eagle Scouts and things like that. You're learning skills when you're going to <laughs> something. Um, and so I think uh, I think what may, is particularly exciting there is helping people understand that they're gaining skills in so many different areas and domains of their life that that's applicable to the workplace. And if we can ask about those things while being cautious of of not uh, retaining anything that shows these sorts of uh, differences for protected classes, um, it's it's only helpful, right? We shouldn't limit ourselves to think that we're just gaining skills when we're sitting at our desk or or however people work, right? You think about the selection process too. Like it totally gets streamlined. You could increase uh, the the flow of candidates. Much easier process. Increase candidate satisfaction just by asking them a few questions you don't have to like answer a long assessment this sort of thing yeah yeah so you know a, a very practical example is a mental ability uh, tests have adverse impact interviews do not interviews are too expensive to use with huge numbers of candidates but if you can automate the interview you can use the interview as the first stage and automated exactly scored it'll have less adverse impact in the same validity Talk about a cool gain. I mean, that's just life changing. We've been, you know, wringing our hands for 20 years. How do we get validity and adverse impact? And now we finally got a chance to make a gain there. And that's, to me, at 70 years old, I am so stoked up. I kind of <laughs> wish I could start my career over again because this is going to change. This is going to change everything. What are you going to do, Michael? Have a third career renaissance? I mean, come on. <laughs> I bet years from now, when we look back, we'll say artificial intelligence had this, an impact greater than uh, uh, meta-analysis. Uh, I'll just bet you when we look back at this, when, when you guys look back, I'll be long gone. But uh, you'll find this to be one of those just pivotal points in our profession. He's so much fun to talk to about this because literally, this is what I mean. But this is how he talks about work all the time. It doesn't matter if it's structured interviews. It doesn't matter if it's SJTs. Like, how can you not be excited about our field? I mean, no doubt. About. Let's uh, let's talk about work a little bit more. But yeah. like, uh, you want to step into the confusion matrix? What is that? Yeah, I saw this. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a good avenue for banter. You know, just to learn okay. a little bit more about y'all. You know, so. Hey, how about this one? Uh, do you have a morning routine at work? And if so, what's it like? Oh, at work. Dad, why don't you go ahead? You're more structured than I am. No, my, my work, I'm very boring. No, very boring. Just uh, get right to work. Drink a lot of coffee. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's what you have to do, like publish that much, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. During the summer, I, uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I work seven days a week. All, I work all the time, always have. And during the summer, I'm working at Lake Cabin Remote, but it ain't so bad because I don't commute at all. I don't have to come up to the lake, don't have to go to the office. So I get about a day back. So, you know, I'm up and I'm at my desk at eight. I work several hours. I do a big physical workout, eat a huge lunch, several more hours of work. Then, you know, I'll probably go for a boat ride and then a swim and then have a couple of drinks. <laughs> and there's, there's my day. 
And at school, it's kind of the same, except I exercise at night and I go to the office in the morning. And that has been his routine my entire life. Life, yeah, nothing's changed. And I'm 34. It's been the the whole time. Except living at the lake now as opposed to coming up every weekend has uh, changed things a bit. You know, I grew up in Minnesota and we we didn't have much money, but a lot of people had cabins. And so uh, that's what left an impression on me. So I couldn't tell you the first thing about sports. I mean, I don't even know what the rules are for most sports, <laughs> but I can tell you a lot about frogs and turtles and every other wild beast. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Emily? Do you, oh, do you have I a am... routine at work? Nope. No. No, uh, just not whatever. At all. No, my cats wake me up, so I feed them. My that's 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 how I start my day. And then if I don't feel like coming <laughs> in, I'll sit in my pajamas most of the day at the at my uh, desk. But I came <laughs> into the office today because I was like, this is a better <laughs> academic background and then very professional apps usually right here you know so yeah these are my favorite confusion matrix answers when somebody's like nope just disregard the question sorry <laughs> <Not answering." laughs> well what about you guys do you guys have like strict routines or are you more like me where you're like sort of whatever works in the moment i'm gonna guess cole is more tab he, he's he's a taskmaster he, he's on it me, like I'll, I, I have a fairly consistent routine. Like I'll uh, roll into the office about 7.45 or 8. Uh, that first like 30 to 45 minutes is, you know, planning the day, checking emails, hoping no one actually sent an email overnight, this sort of thing. And then uh, kind of getting into like whatever sort of activities I need to get into for the day. But I have blocked my like 8 o'clock to 8.30 time. Like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that early morning meeting sort of. Aspects, yeah. Yeah, I got. I kind of have like a rotation. So I got first thing in the morning, I either wake up and go for a walk with my wife, go for a run by myself, or lift weights. Um, and this kind of goes on a three day rotation. Then after that, get the kids ready, send them off to daycare, and then start work. Pretty basic. Nothing exciting happens in the morning once you're yeah. over the age of twenty five. <laughs> Well, Emily, since you didn't know what the confusion matrix was, I'm going to assume you don't know what the nerdery is, but <laughs> would you and Mike like to join us in the nerdery anyway? Yes. Who wouldn't? No, I, yeah. <laughs> so what, uh, what better way to start off the nerdery than let's talk about fraud a little bit. <laughs> so this... First of all, I want to give this guy some credit because apparently a student at Stanford that works for their student newspaper did some research and in digging into the university's president, which led to a, a domino effect of a series of, of compounding things that the, the president has actually left the university yeah, for academic tough. malpractice wow. probably over a decade before I imagined. But the, the title of the article is Stanford President Resigns Over Manipulated Research and Will Retract At Least Three Papers, some of which were in science, in nature. So the, the, the premier journals in our field, uh, some dealing with Alzheimer's disease and like things that are going to turn Alzheimer's disease on its head, when in reality, um, it, I guess the crux of it is, and I'm not sure I really understand this because I'm not, it's not my academic discipline, but it's saying that maybe they doctored some of the image research that was being done in the neuroscience field. I just see this sort of as, as being a, a slow moving trend. So a few weeks ago, we talked about 
this uh, behavioral science professor at Harvard who had, um, <laughs> who had ironically literally written a book that said, here's how, like, you have to cheat to get ahead in the world. And then found out that she was cheating. <laughs> really? Ahead and acting, yeah, I'm not kidding. Like, this was like the subtitle of one of her books. Um, and, and so, like, I, I see this and I don't know, both of you are in academia. What is like, and we've had, you know, folks like Marcus Cradell on the podcast before he's talked about, I think he even said like something like a third of academic research has like, is just junk, junk science or something like this. Like up, what, yeah. like what's going on here? Is there a trend going on in academia? And, and can you talk about it? Because I mean, these are pretty high profile cases at some premier institutions. Oh, I'm always so hesitant. This is a really tough topic. The moment you dive in a little bit, it makes it even more complicated. I, I don't want to go immediately and say, well, the system does this. But I mean, when we think about how people behave in any sort of instance, we've got research on like Enron. There's like, speaking of text analysis, there was a paper out of uh, org science on like Enron emails several years ago. That's really compelling to look at how individuals um, actually came to sort of behave unethically and reinforced you know, or or normalize that. And they found this through sort of their communication. You know, I, I do think there is something about the system that's tough. I mean, like it's 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 job season in our field. And uh, that means students are talking about how to get a job and how hard it is to publish and they'll do anything to publish. And mm -hmm. I feel like I'm writing to a reviewer rather than writing to the science. And I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really complicated. And, and you can, uh, I can understand this is really delicate to say because now everyone's going to think that I've cheated. I can understand the motivation to. Yeah, you, you got to get published. Exactly. You know, yeah, you, I mean, I always think about the famous Charlie Munger quote, you show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. Right. Yeah. And if the incentives are saying, you know, I've got to do anything to get ahead. Well, some people are going to cross that line, you know. I think in fairness, like this Stanford president, uh, the review board essentially said that he didn't himself fabricate the results, but he did reward the winners in the lab, people that found positive results. And of course, he celebrated that. So once again, incentivizing students to p-hack to, you know, uh, let's say fine confirmatory results. Yeah. Well, who knows and how those communications went too. I mean, you can, I remember being a student, it wasn't too long ago and I never faced faculty who made me feel this way, like at all, but you can imagine those that you're interpreting that as what you should be doing based on the, the reward that an individual gets for doing really well. And you're seeing it as, well, I need to do this absolutely. And I have no other choice. And maybe that was never actually communicated. That's what makes so, so much of this so difficult, right? Like, we don't, we don't know a lot of these conversations. We don't know what went through some of these mm -hmm. folks' head. They have very real consequences and they should be investigated. But we, we're critical thinkers, right? Like we're all educated. We understand that there are going to be things in this that we don't understand. So kudos to him for stepping down. I think it shows good leadership for him to say, this was under my watch and I take responsibility. Um, uh, but, but I, you know, we don't know. Yeah. It's so hard. Well, it's I, I want to dig into it a little further, just because something that Mike said earlier about like, can you trust junk science when there's a profit motive involved of like somebody who's trying to create like a selection instrument, they're going to be tempted to try to find something even if it doesn't exist. Isn't the same incentive structure kind of in place for the graduate student who's trying to get their first academic job? You know, I mean, like, I, I just, I feel like our science is being undermined so much by the publisher parish 
type of environment, it's creating a system of incentives that is probably leading to more of this than we would like to admit. I don't know, Michael, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I'm tuned in, but all you can see me nodding my head like one of those little head bobbing toys uh, that people put in their cars. <laughs> and uh, I blame all the same stuff you blame, uh, but also I blame the review process because the reviewers, if you submit a paper and it's null results, they'll find reasons to reject your paper. And uh, nobody really knows if you selected reporting. So it's kind of one of those things you can get away with. And then worst of all, the reviewers say, well, that hypothesis didn't work. Why don't you get rid of that one? And, uh, you know, this looks interesting. Uh, you found something there. Why don't you do more of that? So they coach you into it. You got a few things gone these days where you submit, you know, uh, pre-results versions. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Uh, and other things. As an editor myself, some 25 years ago, I made the decision on every paper at the end of the methods. And um, I feel very proud of having done that. So I didn't look at the results and try to adjust to make the, the article sound just perfect. Like they set out to find this, they found exactly what they wanted to find. Everything turned out, it was a beautiful day in the afternoon. And just it was in Iowa and all of us are wonderful. That's not the way research goes. It's lumpy. It's it's gorgeous. And, you know, I don't give a shit about harking because usually you don't understand the literature really well until you get the paper done anyway. So uh, hypotheses are just a way to frame it up. What they ought to do is reflect the, the state of the literature at the time you did the study accurately and your conceptual contribution. That's what they should do. That evolves all the way to the end. But selective reporting, that's that's our biggest villain. And um, and uh, I don't know what happened. I do know a lot about executives. I've only done you know, like 1,500 consulting projects. Uh, it doesn't take much to take an executive out. Uh, you, if you get them on some little thing, they might forgive you or I. But with an executive, it just creates so much embarrassment. It, it's just not worth the fight. So many of them just say, F you, I'm out of here and they just quit. And that happens a lot. I know unpopular professors, they step over the line a little bit. And that's easiest way to get rid of them, you know, as opposed to trying to manage your performance problem. You wait till somebody violates some little rule, then you get them on that. So kind of the same thing is often going with executives. So I don't know enough about that one, but selective reporting is a problem. But we do have, you know, I have some AEs and you and the, when you and I did our, our, you know, did our special issue, we were very intense about saying, you know, we had, we did have to make our folks cut a lot because we combined a bunch of studies into two papers. Um, and so we just use the online supplement, right? Use OSFs, use online supplements, put everything in there. We need those yeah. for metas anyway, right? It doesn't matter. It didn't matter when we were editing, like, if it didn't really show something, that was that wasn't a big deal. But if the study design was strong and you didn't find something, that's fine. And mm -hmm. I have an AE at a journal right now, and they are very intense about saying I. It is not about whether or not something comes up significant. That's not the point. The mm -hmm. point is, you know, I want I want I want this story description, and I, you just haven't really told me enough. And this is wonderful AE, and I'm so grateful for that because we were concerned. And after an R and R, we found not really big results right and it followed theory it followed what we were supposed to do and this this ae was like that's you know that's not what i'm concerned about but you have you know having a strong study design is what matters so you do have a lot of these good actors in in uh the review process but that also takes us to how do we then train our students to be good reviewers 
so they don't commit this mistake, right? And that's, I mean, that's what I say when it's like the system, it's so easy to blame that because it's faceless. But I mean, you know, a great review team when, you, when you're with it. Speaking of the system, like we got this other article, an A is an A, the new bottom line for valuing academic research by a Guinness a couple of years ago. It's, it's dovetails very nicely with this uh, article that uh, Cold's presented. So there's increased p- pressure to publish in A journals. Uh, it's the bottom line for valuing academic research. So uh, faculty recruiting panels often discuss how many A's a candidate has. But uh, there's less conversation around the intellectual value of the actual research. Uh, so there's pros and cons to this. So the pros, mm-hmm. it becomes easy to evaluate uh, people. You got clear criteria, uh, clear objectives, easy to assess salary and you know, whether someone's uh, should be hired, this mm-hmm. sort of thing. But it also is negative. So you get this like uh, journalist fetishism and uh, no thought to how it will improve the actual IO field. Uh, questionable research practices, as we just like kind of talked about, and can expand on some more, and uh, proliferation of multi-author papers where you know everyone wants to get on board. So I mean, are, yeah, are, are you all hard to publish? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you build these huge teams? Yeah, and actually, here at Iowa, they have if you've published with someone more than a couple of times, and or if you're on like you're like fifth or sixth author often. Um, this is something that comes up and they like solicit uh, co-author letters about your role um, to try and combat some of that uh, to get a better sense of what you're doing. And and so the schools are tuned into this and trying to better understand it. Um, yeah, I love Herman's work. He's always he always does what we don't want, which is hold up a mirror to our field and say, are we sure we're doing what we should be doing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let, let me let me comment on that because I, I have very strong views. Uh, I have been, you know, at Purdue for 38 years and and have been on the promotion panel, you know, that where we all get together and vote on people ever since. And here's what happens if you don't use clear criteria like counting A's, then every kind of subjectivity enters in. And it's literally people will advocate for friends and relatives. So yes, it's very limited <laughs> to count. But it's a system that has objective rules, and it's better than any other alternative. So uh, we have a strict rank order of what the top journals are. You get a certain number, you pass the bar. Without that, it becomes just friends and relatives, subjectivity, discrimination, allegations. It's a complete mess. So, So it's not perfect, but there is nothing better. And after 35 years yeah. of beating my peers at Purdue, I got every area in the school has a clear number. How many? And it, usually that includes you know, how many should be first authored. Uh, in a limited number of journals, your very best journals. Now, there might be 30 other pieces, uh, but that's the best of a lot of evils. Otherwise, you have too much subjectivity. And so that's. A highly experienced academic's uh, opinion about that. And so take it for what it's worth. may sound terrible, but honestly, it's not. Uh, And um, the other thing is everybody wanting like hell to publish. That is so, um, what are we complaining about? (laughs) 30, 30, 40 years ago, nobody published a damn in the field hardly progressed. Now everybody wants to publish and the field is moving together much faster. So I'd say, you know, I, I think things are wonderful rather than terrible. Thank God everybody wants to publish. Well, let, let me jump in here. Because I, I just I think it's an important point to call out because 
I really appreciate what Herman against is doing. I really appreciate people like you, Mike and Emily, who are publishing really practical things that matter, that bridge the science practitioner gap. I think kind of the, the real net net of this or the takeaway that I see is I wish we could find a way of not just rewarding for being in an A journal, but for being in an A journal that's doing something that gives back to not just the science, but the practice. And so uh, you find like whole sub disciplines that are in the top journals of things that are smuggling in nothing that has to do with practice. Like, and, and people realize they can make a whole career out of publishing things that don't matter to anything. And, and so, but they still have the same academic standing as somebody who does the right things like you guys. And so that's the frustration to me is like, if you want to bridge the science practitioner gap, you've got to get, you've got to weigh somehow that impact matters, not just the, the quality or the tier of the journal. Oh man, you, you and I so agree on that. I just, I, I, I don't even know how to add to what you just so, uh, you know, clearly articulated. And I'm, I, I think that is an issue I'm totally behind what you just said. And um, Emily will have different views. I have marginally different views only because, <laughs> so I do, I do think you, you see this um, line being, I should first say, I identify first and foremost as an HR researcher. And if I could go and do it again, I would get a master's in IO first and then, and then uh, whether or not I would end up, you know, uh, doing a PhD in IO versus management is, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I did one in, in management. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I do see some value in some of the things that uh, I think some IOs would say, hey, this isn't really practical. For example, I study things like identity conflict, and I think it's so much fun to think about that sort of thing and how people manage that at work. And, But I know there are plenty of people who would say that's not really that important. And I get that too, because you know what's more important to companies? Selection, getting the right person in the door. They don't care about your identity. They want to know you can do things. I do see, I do understand uh, why um, people get frustrated with that side of it. And I do think we have a very big problem, particularly at Academy, and I'm pretty vocal about this, and I should really be careful because most of my folks here are management, you know, really hardcore management folks. I think we have a very big problem in management and trying to, to force us to think practice. I think we've gone a step closer by thinking policy. And, and Herman also has written about this issue is like not just practical implications for organizations, but how are we speaking more broadly to social problems? And I do think sometimes that management scholars may may um, have uh, the skills more so than potentially IO. I don't know if I actually believe what I just said. But nevertheless, Academy, instead of maybe going this aggressive practice route is how, you know, how do we help people select? How do we retain and all of these sorts of things, which of course they do study those things, but they've gone this route of how do we influence uh, and, and move things socially. And so I think that's maybe the management way of trying to go about it, understanding abusive supervisors, for example, maybe not as relevant to, or not hardcore IO stuff, but still relevant to the way that people experience their lives with dignity, right? And so, so I think, you know, there's still value to it, but they're speaking, they're maybe not speaking to the same audience. Um, and maybe that's okay. Maybe that's fine because that's IOs okay. aren't maybe speaking to that. I, you know, there's a place for both. And that's my diplomatic way of saying that because I'm sitting in a management school right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a circular argument too. I mean, like um, you get rewarded for uh, 
publishing in a journals. And, you know, to do that, maybe you've got to bend the rules a little bit, according to like the Stanford professor. And like, we like wrap his knuckles for having shoddy research, but. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, something we're dealing with on the management side, and that's really frustrating me because I don't have a solution is accessing data sources. So and the HR side, when I'm, you know, when we work with companies or I work with my dad and he has, you know, a data set is from an yeah. organization is, you know, are there things we can't measure with it? Yes. But the study design is great and it's real people actually working. We're controlling for a lot of compounds because it's one organization or, you know, maybe several, but, but nevertheless, you know, it's really well designed. Whereas in, in the management side, sometimes with what we're studying, you know, we're using prolific, we're using not as much MTurk anymore. Again, maybe thanks to Herman, I think he's done some work on that too. Um, is like, how do we find these data sources? We're using Qualtrics panels. And I'm really concerned because a lot of those are attitudes, predicting attitudes, and and we're doing putting a lot of trust in, in these panels of people. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, is that organizations, and right, I understand why, are very hesitant to partner. That's been a big thing since I've been here, talked to all my senior faculty about like, how do we get in with local organizations? And they're like, it's tough. It's really tough. Um, what's their what's their incentive for them? And so for the management side, I will say, I think we struggle a little bit more because we don't have that IO background where we're embedded or maybe we had an internship or have continued our relationship with half of our you know, cohort who goes off to practice, we all go into academia and management mostly. And so, um, so I think that's feeding part of this problem. So, you know, if you guys ever <laughs> want to partner, I can give you really good management students. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. like, speaking of like attitudes, predicting attitudes, uh, both of you all live in college towns uh, in the North, right? Yeah. Big so 10. Big 10. <laughs> Big Ten, baby. So this is a fun article from the British Journal of Social Psychology. When looking hot means not feeling cold. So we've all seen like these party goers sitting outside yeah. the clubs in like the middle of winter. And you're like, how? How are they doing this? This is impossible. Mm -hmm. Well, this study proposes that self-objectification, i.e. do you think you look good, inhibits feelings of coldness in women. Uh, yeah. So they surveyed women outside of clubs assessing their sense of self-objectification and how cold they felt uh, in, in February, by the way. Uh, and the results show that women uh, more heavily focused on their appearance did not feel colder when wearing less clothing. So uh, listen, Scott, we put in the work. OK, we put in the work. <laughs> we put on all the makeup. We got the clothes. We're not going to ruin it with a coat. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so the, the question like, I have is: Was this mediated by alcohol consumption? Like, <laughs> they did test that. They they uh, accounted for alcohol in it, but I mean, like, there you go. Like, you think that they must be freezing? Maybe not. No, I I actually when you said that it made me laugh. I was like, first of all, my dad's not gonna know like any of this because you're not ever on campus. You don't ever see you know this. You're never there late. But and and now I'm like far too old to be thinking about it. But you know, like I I remember that, and I see it here sometimes too. Oh yeah. I'm like, oh, I just put on a coat. But then I'm like, oh no, you're fine. You're 21. Do it. You you worked hard. You look great. Just have a good time. You know. Now I always wear layers, but I would never do that now, but I'm too old and that's perfectly fine. <laughs> but I love that. I, I, that's the sort of research you think, this is what I mean though, is like, how practical is that? Not really, but it's so much fun to think about and talk about. Well, oh, yeah, it did give us something to talk about on the podcast. So that <laughs> makes it practical in itself. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so guys, did you do deal with this in college? I mean, you know, did you wear a coat or sweatshirt? I was never like a club goer per se. I know that's not necessarily the question, but boy, I'll, I'll see 
teenage boys walk around in basketball shorts year round in the snow, yeah, really. flip flops. Mm-hmm. It's it's not. I don't think they're self objectifying themselves <laughs> by any means based on how they look, <laughs> but they'll definitely bear the cold. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't necessarily one to floss on people or something like that, but <laughs> having a a guy having a good jacket is actually a good thing sometimes. So I think guys can get away with more than the females can. I will say this study took place in South Florida, so I mean, like, how cold could they really be? Oh come on! <laughs> it's like sixties at worst there. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, so obviously they're fine. Have them come up to Iowa in February and tell me what it's like. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a lot of fun. You guys have been amazing guests. I think we've covered a whole lot of territory. So I'd just like to say thank you so much, Mike and Emily, for joining us today. Before we give you the final word, though, Scott, any parting words for Mike and Emily? Oh, Mike and Emily, fantastic having y'all learning from y'all. Uh, here, we'll make it true IO. Like, rate, rate your experience one to five. Are they anchored? Attitudes predicting attitudes. (laughs) I'd like to say something, and that is to the point you guys made earlier. I think we got what makes our science work is we all give back. Everybody in SIOP, the greatest thing about SIOP is we actually like each other. We all get along really well. We hang in there like a group. We go very high numbers to our conference. We're very different than other associations. And that's part of our beauty. And part of it is giving back to the science. And so an illustration is this thing you guys are doing mm-hmm. uh, is, is it's, you don't just do this for fun. You're giving back to the profession and thank you for doing so. That is just what we're all about at IO. And, um, and it's an example of what you were saying earlier and I fully support it. And thanks for having us on. How could you not want to go into IO when this guy's talking? Come <laughs> <Yes>. on now. <laughs> See? See what I'm dealing with? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you didn't actually go into I.O. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. He said you don't have to. He said you do. I'm a sneaky. I like people have let me, but I am cautious to say like I am not an I.O. And I don't like that about myself. It's probably the only thing I would change in my <laughs> career. I'd go back and do the I.O. route. But I but you guys let me hang out at SIOP like one of one of you. So thanks. <laughs> Which one of us is the question? (laughs) Thank you guys so much again. And you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Alex podcast with Colin Scott, Dr. Michael Campion, and Dr. Emily Campion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having us. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Alex podcast with Colin Scott. 